beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we begin a new sermon series on the letter of James. James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the author calls himself James, without giving any further details to identify himself, it's clear that his audience knew who he was. The Bible makes it clear that James was the brother of the Lord Jesus, a son of Joseph and Mary. From the Gospels, we know that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him while he was conducting his public ministry. We don't know when James came to the faith, but Jesus did appear to him after his resurrection. Acts tells us that James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In the early church, he became known as James the Just because of his personal righteousness and his desire to promote righteousness in others. James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The 12 tribes is a reference to the people of Israel. Yet James is not writing to Jews in general. James is a church leader. He is addressing Christians. James uses the expression, the 12 tribes, to show how the apostles and church leaders saw the church as the true continuation of the people of Israel, as the covenant people of God. James speaks about these Christians being dispersed. The book of Acts makes it clear that the church in Jerusalem was persecuted for its faith, that many of the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria, and later throughout Asia Minor. Thus, James is addressing Christians spread far and wide, who are yet the dearly loved people of God, the sheep of the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. James begins his letter by addressing the trials that his readers are undergoing. For some of James' original readers, these trials included the hardships that came from being persecuted. Some early Christians were of Jewish descent. They were ostracized by Jewish family members and friends for converting to the Christian faith. Others were of Gentile background. They were barely tolerated by society around them because they were not willing to conform to its religion or lifestyle. As will become evident later in James, many of these early Christians were truly poor. James is careful to generalize his message for all who face trials in life. He speaks of trials of various kinds. Life in this fallen and broken world is not easy at the best of times. We grieve over our losses, whether that be a job or a friendship or a loved one. We struggle with broken relationships. We face disappointments over people who have cheated us, friends who have deserted us, brothers and sisters who have not helped us in our moment of need. We struggle with sickness and accidents and with the limitations they bring. We have a hard time overcoming the trauma caused by people 
who are supposed to love and care for us. James addresses us on how to deal with the trials of life. He teaches that trials are not random events that just happen to us. They come to us from God. That can be really hard for us to accept. Why would a loving God allow such and such to happen to me? James stresses that God is good. That he loves to give good gifts to his children. God has a purpose in allowing us to undergo trials and hardships. James wants us to consider what that purpose may be. He also teaches us how to handle the trials of life through prayer, that we may endure them and receive God's blessings. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. Persevere with joy through the midst of God-given trials. James teaches us to consider the purpose of trials, to pray for wisdom in handling trials, and to persevere through the midst of trials. In his letter, James is very direct in his teaching. After passing on greetings, he immediately addresses what's going on in the lives of his readers. He commands, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In addressing this issue, James, as leader in the church, is being very pastoral. He knows that in recent years, his readers have faced intense struggles. For many of them, there was no end in sight. They're faced with really tough times. They weren't always sure about how to move forward in life. And thus, James immediately deals with one of the biggest issues facing them in their lives. This doesn't mean that the first verses of James 1 are an appropriate passage to read to someone when they're first confronted with a deep trial in their life. Imagine someone has just lost their job or has been forced to declare bankruptcy or has been diagnosed with a serious illness. You come along and tell them to count it pure joy that they're facing this trial. For God intends to strengthen their character through it. They'd likely want to strangle you or take your Bible and thump you with it. You'd be like one of Job's friends, a very poor comforter. When we undergo trials in life, we need time to process them. Very often, when first faced with bad news, we go into denial. And we try to avoid people. Generally, we'll go through a stage when we're angry, when we blame other people, or even blame God for our hardships. At times, we'll try to bargain with God, promising certain things if God relieves us of our struggles and burdens. Many who face adversity and loss will undergo depression. It's only as we work through our emotions that we gradually start to come to terms with the difficult trials of life. 
In our text, James provides a blueprint for how to do that. He tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Some Bibles translate, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. When James tells us to count or to consider, he's suggesting a certain mindset, a perspective, a view of the world that helps us to see the joys and sorrows of life properly. So what is this mindset, this perspective on how to cope with trials that James teaches us? The first thing we need to recognize is that this world is a place of constant testing. Life is full of ups and downs. We live in a sinful and a broken world. We will face hardships and struggles. Each stage of life has its own difficulties. We tend to look ahead at the good things that await us in the next stage of life. And then we're often surprised when, that's, when in that stage we're faced with ongoing difficulties. High school students often look towards being the seniors, the graduating class. Then they'll be kings of the school. They'll get to do all the fun stuff. Yet when these students become seniors, they're still faced with normal life. Some of their classes are still long and boring. They still have to do homework. Their parents still impose chores and curfews. They've got to figure out what they're going to do next year and apply to college or university or find a job. They think, ah, if only grad comes, then my trials will be over. Consider what happens when a young man meets a young woman. They date. They have fun. They get along well together. In time, they get tired of needing to say goodnight and go their separate ways. They gaze into each other's eyes full of love for one another. They just can't wait to get married. All the trials of life will then be over. The honeymoon comes and goes. They rent a small apartment. Life settles into a normal routine. Yet she's bothered by the fact that her husband's a slob and leaves his clothes laying all over the place. And he's frustrated by how much money she spends. And that she still expects him to demonstrate his love by taking her on dates and buying her flowers. In bed, he finds it hard to get a good night's sleep because she's always hogging all the blankets. They work through some of these issues and life carries on. But for some reason, though they're trying, they're not receiving a child. They think, if only God would grant them a child, life would be good. And in time, God grants them the desires of their heart. They're expecting a baby. But pregnancy is tough. She's puking every morning. He comes home from work and regularly finds her bagged out on the couch. She's just so tired, she's got no energy. 
That all passes too, and the time comes for them to have a baby. The wonderful moment when their child is born. So amazing. They're on top of the world. Now life is complete. All is good. Parents think our marriage is good, our child is home. At last, all our trials are over. Suddenly, just an hour after drifting off to sleep, they're awoken by a cry. The baby's awake. Mom gets up to feed and change her. Eventually, the baby's back in bed, and mom's finally ready to settle in for some more sleep, too. But wait, the baby's crying again. She's just been fed. Her diaper is dry. She's crying for no good reason. And so the trials of parenthood begin. Parents are constantly looking forward to the next stage when life will get easier, when the baby sleeps through the night, when the kids are old enough to go to school and mom can have some peace and quiet during the day, when kids become more independent, when they get their license, when they move out. But life goes on with all its ups and its downs, with all its trials and sorrows. And beloved, it's the same at work. We're looking for our next promotion or wondering if we should apply for a job with a different company. If the economy is thriving and our company is growing, we stress because there's too much to do and it's hard to find good people. The economy is slow, we're anxious about keeping employees working and having enough to pay the bills. The trials never end. Life continues to confront us with stress and anxiety. And beloved, we haven't even begun to consider some of the more difficult trials in life. Hearing the news that a loved one's been involved in a serious accident being abused or assaulted, and trying to come to terms with the trauma you experienced. Being confronted with struggles in your marriage, perhaps even the betrayal of your spouse. Being diagnosed with a serious illness, or walking alongside a family member struggling with pain or the limitations that illness brings having to face serious issues with anxiety, depression, or other mental health struggles, seeing loved ones stray from God's ways. How are we to cope with the trials of life? James teaches us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. To be clear, he's not telling us to enjoy misery. Nobody has to say, I'm so happy, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Or, how wonderful, I declared bankruptcy yesterday. To consider something pure joy does not mean that we enjoy it. James's point becomes clear in the following verses. There he speaks about how the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, how that leads us to become mature and complete. 
James is teaching us a mindset for how to deal with the trials of life. Ultimately, they come from the hand of God. God has a purpose in allowing us to undergo various trials in our lives. His goal, says James, is to cause us to grow. James speaks about how the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Please note carefully, the trials of life themselves don't produce steadfastness or lead to maturity. The trials of life by themselves can be relentless. They can break even the strongest among us. James teaches that the trials of life are a testing of our faith. We need to see them in that way for them to produce anything good in our lives. We need to learn that through the trials of life, God is at work in us. God's busy with us, forming us and shaping us. Sometimes right in the midst of a trial, we cannot see that clearly. Yet afterwards, when we're reflecting on God's work in our life, we observe that he used a certain trial or hardship to build us up in our faith. It caused us to pray more. It forced us back to the Bible and caused us to read it with a whole new perspective. I learned to hang on to God's gracious promises in ways I never needed to before. So, beloved, let me ask you, how have you dealt with the various trials that God has used to test your faith? Do you understand that ultimately it's God who sends various trials in life? Can you see that God doesn't hate you? That he isn't punishing you? Do you see his hand at work in your life? Teaching you to persevere through hard times? Can you see how God is leading you to greater maturity? Now for the hardest question of all. Are you able to consider it pure joy when you're faced with new trials in your life? Do you rejoice in God's loving care and leading your life to bring you closer to Him? It is hard as human beings to cope with the trials of life. It helps to understand God is at work in us, making us mature and complete. This brings us to our second point, and we'll see how James teaches us to pray for wisdom in handling trials. At the end of verse 4 of our text, James expresses God's purpose for allowing trials in our lives. It is that we may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Yet for God to build us up in the faith, we need to recognize that he uses trials to do that. For us to have that mindset, we need wisdom. Many people, even Christians, bemoan the trials of life. 
trials frustrate us. They breed discontent. They make us envious of others who seem to just coast through life. Suffering can create fear or despair or a determination to look out for number one or even anger towards God. We don't We often don't handle the trials of life well at all. We struggle to understand how God could allow such suffering, so much hardship in my life. If that's where you're at, beloved, if you're really struggling to put your trials into perspective, then James says, pray. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Please note, beloved, how James teaches us to think about God. God is not cruel. God is not cheap. God is not vindictive. God doesn't delight in slapping us around or in jerking our chain. What's God really like? God is good. In James 1, 16 and 17, James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In our text, James says that God gives generously to all without reproach. People can be different. If you're struggling financially, someone may help you kindly. When you come for help the third or fourth time, they may still help. But it gets harder for them to do that without finding fault. They may give you more money, but add What happened to all the money I gave you last month? If you need help with a certain task, someone may indicate willingness to help. But add a comment that you should have started earlier. It's so easy for us as human beings to be negative and critical, even when we're helping out. But beloved, God's not like that. God delights in giving good gifts. God's gifts don't become debts. He doesn't expect a payback. Psalm 103 tells us much about God's character. It tells us the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. As a father shows compassion To his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So, beloved, if we're struggling to make sense of life, God wants us to pray to him. He wants us to pour out our hearts before his throne of grace. He wants us to tell him about our struggles, our sorrows, our hardships. When we pray, 
We have Jesus Christ seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Jesus lived on this earth. He was the man of sorrows. He faced great trials in his life. He was rejected by the people that he came to save. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples, denied by another, forsaken by them all. He suffered beatings and ridicule while on trial. He was stripped naked and hung on a cross, suffering the agony and the shame of such a horrible death. He was forsaken by his father. He had to bear the wrath of God against our sins. The point I'm making, beloved, is that Jesus understands what it means to undergo trials in life. He can sympathize with us in the struggles and the sorrows we undergo. Jesus gets it. And when we pray, he prays with us and for us. He lays our sorrows and struggles, our needs and concerns before God. With the assurance, our prayers are heard and God will help us. God may not take away the source of our struggle. He may allow our hardship to continue but he'll help us bear it. He'll use it to build us up in our faith in him. He'll help us to persevere in our faith so we grow into spiritual maturity. For this to happen, we need to ask in faith, wholeheartedly seeking God, fully expecting him to provide for us. James says that anyone who asks must believe and not doubt. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. In our text, James contrasts faith and doubt. He equates doubt with unbelief. If you don't believe in God, or if you don't believe that God is a good God, or if you don't believe that God is able to give you whatever you ask from him, why pray? Part of a God-pleasing prayer is that it must rest on the firm foundation that God, that although we don't deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord. For this is what he has promised us in his word. So, beloved, if you are struggling with the trials of life, pray for God to help. Specifically, pray for wisdom. Often we're inclined to ask God to relieve us of the source of our struggles. And that's allowed. When we're sick, we may pray for healing. When we're facing struggles in our relationships, we can pray for God to help us deal with them. When we're bowed down because loved ones are straying from the Lord's service, it pleases God for us to pray for their repentance. Now, beloved, God may not answer those prayers in the way or at the time you desire. 
And so we need to pray for wisdom that we may understand that God may be using the trials of life for other purposes, that he may be using them to develop our Christian character to bring us to a greater maturity in the faith. This brings us to our final point, and we'll see how James teaches us to persevere in the midst of trials. In the final verses of our text, James addresses some words to the rich and the poor. He writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. With these words, James presents us with a riddle. To understand what James is saying, we need to know something about the circumstances of many in the early church. In the early church, most of the members were relatively poor. At that time, many church members were slaves who had no possessions of their own. They had a low social status, no independent means. They were in servitude of their earthly masters. It's hard to be poor. This is even more difficult if, humanly speaking, there's no way out of your circumstances. It's tough to be subservient, to be dependent on the goodness of others. One of the most difficult things would have been for these poor church members to accept their position in life. Yet James encourages the brother in humble circumstances to take pride in his high position. Notice the reference to the fact that he is a brother. Not a blood brother, but a brother in Christ. While in the eyes of the world he was a poor servant, he has a different position in the church. Whether you're a slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, in the church, we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. As such, we're all equal. We all share in the grace of the Lord and the salvation He grants. A brother in humble circumstances could rejoice and be glad in that. James also addresses the rich. He encourages them not to boast or to take pride in their riches. Riches give a certain social status, an ability to do things the poor cannot afford. This easily leads to pride and boasting and an abuse of power. In his letter, James admonishes the rich for dragging the poor into court not tending to their needs, bragging about their business trips, and for hoarding money and holding back the wages of their laborers. In our text, James encourages the rich to take pride in their low position. He tells them to see themselves as no better than their slaves or the laborers they employed. Instead of taking pride in their social position or worldly status, the rich needed to see that the time would come when they too would fade away. Economic circumstances, old age or death would take them away from the business that made them prominent. 
The rich needed to know that they were no greater than any other person. They too were sinful people who were saved by grace alone. They needed to learn to boast in Christ and not in their social standing. So why does James address this matter of the rich and the poor in our text? Because there's a connection to the trials of life that we're confronted with. Being poor brings with it many hardships and trials. Those who struggle to make ends meet are often envious of others who appear to be well off. We think that if only we had a better paying job or more money, all would be well with us in life. But James shows that that's not the case. Riches come with their own trials. You need to be a good steward of what God has given you. You have a responsibility to use your money for the benefit of others. It's easy to become proud or to live independently of God. Better financial circumstances just bring trials of a different kind. And thus James concludes with a call to perseverance in the faith. He writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. With these words, James is promising a glorious future to those who hold fast their faith to the end. He's promising life with God eternally. He's promising joy and glory on new heavens and a new earth to all those who hold fast their faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, we will all face many and varied trials as we go through life. Life on this side of glory is filled with hardships, struggles, sickness, pain, sorrow, and distress. The question is, how do you deal with these things? Can you accept that these trials come from God, that His purpose is to build us up in the faith through them? Can we see how God uses trials to strengthen our character, to bring us to maturity? If so, then you will learn to count it all joy, even when God brings trials and hardships into your life. For you'll understand that somehow God is working for your good, even in the midst of the trials you need to endure. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God, a prayer for wisdom. Psalm 90, stanzas 5, 6, and 7.